Well, we're up to our final message in this uh, mini-series of beginning with Moses, seeing Christ in all the scriptures. And uh, this is the third of the uh, Old Testament passages that we've explored to see how Christ is promised, patterned and present in the Old Testament. And I trust that uh, you're beginning to kind of get the idea as we've followed that structure each week. Uh, how to apply these principles so that whatever story or passage we're reading in the Old Testament especially, we'll see that they are first and foremost not about us, but about Jesus. Uh, We've seen how important it is to avoid uh, what I called narcissus, reading ourselves into the text, and instead to practice uh, what Biblical scholars called exegesis. Ex means out of. Allowing the text to speak for itself as it points us to Christ. Every time we read the Bible, we should see it as a lens that helps us see Christ more clearly. So, how do we see Christ promised in this passage Uh, As I've said, uh, often it's the promise that is uh, the easiest to identify and I trust that you spotted it there in verses uh, 12 to 15 in particular. But there were two aspects to this promise uh, about David's offspring that God was making. uh, David's name and David's house. And we see the... Uh, where is it? The mention of the name here in verses 9 uh, to 10 and 11. This great name of David is associated with uh, Israel being planted or established in the land. Uh, it's about them having security from their enemies uh, and rest from their enemies. Now, biblically, a a person's name was much more than simply a label used to identify someone, like we tend to use it today. A person's name signified the totality of who they are, their character, their significance and their place in society, their God-given destiny. That's why we often see the Lord changing people's names, like Abram, who became Abraham, Sarai, who became Sarah, Jacob, who became Israel. In all of these name changes, the Lord was saying something significant about how his promise would be fulfilled and worked out in their lives and through their lives to others. Let's remind ourselves of the first time that he made the promise to Abraham, who at the time was still Abram. Um, there. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham's name would become great for a purpose so that the blessing of the Lord might flow to others. 
His name, Abram, meaning exalted father, was changed to Abraham, which means father of many, to reflect this new identity, this new destiny. But see how the same association was made with David's name. The promise to Abraham, whose name would mean a blessing in and through a great nation, is now being worked out through David, who's also given a great name to give the people a security in the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham where the people are now living. But both Abraham and David were reflecting the Lord in the greatness of their names. It was knowing the name of the Lord that made Israel his people. They were able to call on him by using his name, Yahweh. Now by the time of Jesus, the Jews were forbidden to use God's name. But he'd he'd never commanded them not to use his name. He just said, don't use my name in vain. Don't use it the way that the nations use the names of their gods, as if it's a magical word that only the initiated priests and the extra holy people could know and use. No, the Lord had given his name to all of the Israelites so they could use it. They could approach him in prayer. They knew that they could know him personally. Remember last week we saw that God's use of Abraham's name, especially its double use, indicated God's closeness to him and his intimate knowledge of Abraham. So too in reverse, to know and use God's name is to know him and to express your relationship with him. Now when Solomon, the son of David, was dedicating dedicating the temple, so the temple that David wanted to build but didn't, and Solomon did build, here's what he said. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not one of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls, you, calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now what a remarkable thing that the God whose great name is to be known in all the earth among all of the nations would then say to a man, David, I will make your name great. Well, Solomon's prayer was um, answered not only in that people did come from many nations to pray in the temple to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
But more than coincidentally, when Jesus was praying before the cross, he said these words, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I'm no longer in the world but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. See how Jesus is expressing his kingly role here as the Messiah as he provides security for God's people in the Father's name. A name which the Father has also given to him. That obviously doesn't mean we call Jesus Father. What it means as he expressed in his prayer is that everything the Father has he is freely given to his son because the name sums up the totality of the person. The father gave everything of himself to the son so that the the son could then fulfil his father's plan in the world. Now the father has made Jesus' name great and he calls all people everywhere to call on the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To call on Jesus' name is to call on him on the basis of all he is, all that he's accomplished through his death, his resurrection. We don't use his name in prayer like a magical word but it as, as an indication that we are entrusting our whole selves to his whole self. So when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. it he's not telling us that we, we need to tack on the phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of every prayer, as if using his name somehow makes our prayer more effective or magically makes our prayer work. His name is the sum total of all he is. So he's not saying, think of what you want, what you'd like to ask for, and if you, if you use my name, then you'll get what you want. No, what he's saying is, if you ask of anything that belongs to me, then you'll receive it. Because that is my intention, to freely share with you everything that is mine. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't use the words in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, but it does mean 
that we need to be sure that whenever we ask, that what we're asking for isn't merely our own selfish desires, but those things that, the, that Jesus has told us out of the Father's riches that he has come to give us. So the great name is part of that promise and along with that then is the house there in verse 11. The Lord will make you a house. Not a building house but a family house. A a house, a family that will continue to carry David's name into the future after he's died. So every king that was to follow David was known as a son of David and the fact that they bore his name gave them the right to rule. By building this house, the Lord will establish his kingdom and ultimately it will be the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God expressed and displayed through the reign of this offspring of David. And again, I hope you see the connection with Abraham in the use of this word offspring. The promise that was first given to Eve was then narrowed down to one from Abraham's descendants and now it's been further narrowed down to the house, the family of David. That's why Jesus' family tree is important. Just before Matthew in his Gospel lists uh, Jesus' ancestors at the start of his Gospel, he writes in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's Matthew's way of saying the promised offspring has come and it's Jesus. Now, we need to ask though, what about verse 14? I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now, the first line, the first bit we get, don't we? Jesus is son of God, both as a king and in his status as the eternal son. But the next bit might bother us because Jesus didn't commit iniquity and it's not Solomon that he's referring to here because while Solomon did commit iniquity there's no record of him being disciplined with the rod of men what this is referring to is the cross where he who knew no sin Nevertheless, became sin for us. Our sin was imputed to his account. He came under the judgment of God as if he were us, those who have committed iniquity. So, David's offspring, the the promised offspring, will bring salvation in two ways. He'll, He'll build a house for God's name, In other words, he'll lead people to worship the Father in spirit and in truth and he will give himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sin. 
And these two things are what Christ has done. Well, how do we see Christ patterned in this passage? I want to highlight two ways, and the second way has multiple ways. Firstly, David himself is a pattern of Jesus. Not only did he receive the promise of the one to come, but he himself, as the king, was a pattern, a a shadow of Christ. David is a great king, but he's only a shadow of the king that is to come. The Lord promised to make David's name great is to be great like the great ones of the earth. But Jesus has a name that is above the great names of the earth. The Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So David was a great king but he was limited. He, he failed in many ways and his limitations and failures were intentional on God's part to make us look past him to Jesus. But secondly, we see Christ patterns in the Ark of the Covenant. David had gone to so much trouble to bring the Ark into Jerusalem because this box, gold-plated box, represented the throne of God. It was the sign of his presence. And so to have it in Jerusalem, the the capital city of Israel, meant that God was dwelling there as king over Israel. There's a, a helpful description of the Ark of the Covenant here in Hebrews chapter 9. On top of the Ark... Uh, I won't be following the exact order here, but on top of the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim. Uh, When we hear that word cherubim, we should think back to the Garden of Eden, the cherubim at the entrance with flaming sword, barring anyone to come in. Unlike popular culture, cherubim are not baby angels. I'm not sure where that idea came from. In fact, they were fearsome caricatures of living creatures, often a combination of many creatures like a lion and an eagle and a man. And they were designed to warn people. They guarded a holy place. You could only enter by passing through the cherubim and you entered upon pain of death if you yourself were not holy. These cherubim overshadowed the mercy seat, the, the lid on the ark. This is the, uh, the mercy seat that the high priest would sprinkle the blood on on the Day of Atonement. Now the Greek word for mercy seat 
It's the word that's used in the New Testament to speak exclusively of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. It's the word that's translated uh, in the ESV, at least, uh, propitiation. I think in the NIV it's called a sacrifice of atonement. So the ark itself pointed us, points us to Christ. But not just the ark, but its contents also point us to Christ. Because it was the ark of the covenant, its contents were the guarantees of the Lord's covenant with Israel. It's kept safe by him as he sits on his throne. It's guarded by him. Firstly, we see the tablets of stone that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai and which were written with the finger of God, the Ten Commandments. These commandments are the summary of the moral law, which is both the expression of God's character, the law by which he operates, and the basis for all of the other laws that Israel were obliged to keep as his covenant people. One of the key things that Jesus did in his public ministry was to teach the law, the moral law. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. He shows us how perfect the law is. It's incredibly high standards that demand a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Later he says, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. The law demands a perfection that is actually the perfection of God himself. Well, Jesus displayed this perfect character of the Father in his life. He was perfect as his father was perfect. And in doing so, he became the only true Israelite, the only one who's ever perfectly kept these covenant requirements. When he said, I am the way, the truth and the life, he was using three words that a Jew would have used in reference to the law. The law is the way to walk. It is the truth of God and it's the path to life. So he was referring to the fact that not only did he do the law, keep the law, but he embodied it. He has become now the law, the law of liberty for all who are in him. That's why the first Christians called themselves followers of the way. So the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments, the other object that was in there is Aaron's staff. When Aaron and the tribe of Levi's status was being challenged as the priests for Israel, Moses made, uh, he placed 12 staffs inside the tent of the Lord's presence, representing each of the 12 tribes. And he left them in there overnight. The next day, 
they were all just sitting there except for Aaron's staff which had sprouted leaves and flowers and almonds. This was the Lord's uh, indication that the Levites and Aaron as their leader were to be the priests for this nation. So they placed this staff in the Ark of the Covenant as a guarantee that the people would always have a priest, a priesthood to serve on their behalf before God. Well, Jesus has become for us this priest. Hebrews 4, since we, then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Note that he's not just a mere priest. He's not even a high priest over the priests, but he's a great high priest. A priest who's over all the priests and over all of the high priests because they all just prefigured him. Thirdly, there was this golden urn containing some of the manna, the the bread that was provided on a daily basis through Israel's travels. Now this manna was given to them not just to meet their daily food and nutrition requirements, but as Deuteronomy 8 says, I haven't got it up there, sorry, he humbled you, causing you to go hungry, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you. That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So why was a portion of manna placed in this golden urn in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was a perpetual reminder to them of the Lord's faithfulness, his provision to Israel over those 40 years when they came out of Egypt. He maintained his covenant faithfulness to them over that time and will continue to do so. Then we hear Jesus say to the crowd of 5,000 that he's just fed with bread miraculously, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is everything we need, not just for everyday life, but for eternal life. Now that the Ark of the Covenant, the, the true Ark of the Covenant has come, Jesus, the old one is obsolete. Occasionally we might hear of, um, I call them crackpot archaeologists, who go on a quest to find the Ark of the Covenant. And there's even a guy, I think he's still alive, who claims that he found it, but it was conveniently uh, confiscated by the Israeli government and it's kept hidden, according to him. But their quest is futile. Even if they did find the original Ark of the Covenant, it would only be a box with some artefacts because it's just the shadow. Christ is the reality. Now thirdly, where is Christ present here? 
And it's not, it's not actually in part of the passage that was read, but if we kept reading into chapter 8, uh, we would have seen uh, on occasion these words uh, at the end of each of those sentences, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then in verse 14, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now we might easily miss these comments because chapter 8 is, is a list of uh, the, the battles and the conflicts that he had with the nations around him and there's all kinds of military details in there and so we might kind of skip over that chapter thinking what, why do the details of David's battles matter to us? How are they relevant for us today? But from the very beginning, Israel was to understand that when they fought against their enemies, it wasn't really them doing the fighting. So what Moses said to them, before they entered the land, you shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight you for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now all of the ancient nations actually believed that their conflicts with one another were actually conflicts between their gods. Victory over an enemy was seen as an indication that your god was more powerful than their god. Because they like the Israelites, believed that their gods were actually present with them on the battlefield. And that's something in human culture that kind of reflects this true reality. God will go with his people and fight for them. Now, of course, this begs the question, what about the times that the Israelites were defeated? Did the other gods then get the upper hand over the Lord at these times? Well, no. The Lord had his good reasons for allowing defeat. Sometimes it was to show them that they were actually trusting in their military might and not in him. So he allowed them to lose the battles. There are other times when in his fatherly care for them as his children, he was using the defeat as an act of loving discipline. There are even times when the Lord speaks almost as if he's switched sides. When Nebuchadnezzar was coming to attack Jerusalem, the Lord speaks in that way almost as if he's fighting with Babylon against Israel. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought that it was his gods that gave him victory and made him into a great and powerful world leader. But he eventually learnt the hard way, as the Israelites learnt the hard way, that the Lord wasn't just one of the many players amongst the gods fighting for supremacy in heaven just like human beings were fighting for supremacy on earth. No, he is the supreme king over all 
kingdoms, over all battlefields. And the victory will always go to the one whom he has chosen for his purposes of accomplishing and shaping and building nations and kingdoms uh, to fulfil his plan in this world. Unlike the other nations who, who actually imagined their gods having real battles up in the heavenly places, when the Bible speaks of the Lord as a, as a warrior, as a man of war, it's using an anthropomorphism. That means something from our world and experience to describe God's actions, to help us understand, but they're not literal statements about his actual nature. God is not a fighter by nature in the same way that he is love or he is holy or he is righteous. It's because of his love and his holiness and his righteousness that he comes and he fights for and on behalf of his people. And so he's happy to to employ that image of a warrior to convey what he does. But why do I say that David's victories is a reference especially to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Well, it's because of the way that the Son is spoken of in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That passage just pulls together all of the Old Testament imagery of the times that the Lord is fighting on the battlefield on behalf of Israel. Now this comes immediately after the announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus here is is depicted as the victorious, conquering king who's been out on the battlefield fighting for the bride, his church, against her enemies. And he's returning victorious in time for their wedding, their marriage. Now we should see this as a vision not just depicting the church age or the end times, but all of history. At any point where God, where God's people faced opposition to their faith and the threats to their lives, all the way back to Abel, God the Son has been fighting on behalf of his bride, preparing her for the marriage feast that will come at the end of the age. 
David knew the Lord not, not just as the king enthroned in the heavens, but also as his good shepherd, whose presence was real and tangible. He was enabled to rule Israel as a man after God's own heart, not just because he followed God's law, but because he knew God's heart. He knew this shepherd who, in the words of Psalm 23, made him, led him by still waters, made him lie down in green pastures, prepared a table for him in the presence of his enemies, who, who guarded and comforted, comforted him through the shadow of death. David, who was a shepherd king, had a shepherd king. But the Lord who was David's shepherd is the same Lord who says to us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, David said. Who is the shepherd who was David's shepherd? It was Jesus himself. The cross where Jesus laid down his life for us, that was where he, the Lord, went out to fight for us, to give us victory over our enemies in the decisive battle of all history, the battle in which the devil, the false god and ruler of this world, was defeated and cast out, where death and the grave were conquered, And the peace and security of his people was secured. So the son's MO, modus operandi, way of operating, hasn't changed from the beginning of time. He's always been livingly present to God's people as the mediator of the Father's goodness and grace. As I said previously, the the promises and the patterns that we see of him in the Bibles, in the Bible stories, are like fingerprints that come from his actual presence in all of them. Now, because this is true, we can be assured of Christ's living presence with us as individuals, as families, as the church, when we face the various battles that come from living in this world where the devil is still active. Jesus isn't lounging around in heaven waiting to to be made king at some point in the distant future. He is king now and he's actively administering his rule in the world today and especially in us, the church. So we need to be intentional, deliberate, in seeing Christ, not just spoken of in the scriptures, but literally present in the events that the scriptures record. And we need to be intentional and deliberate in identifying his presence with us today by his spirit. It doesn't require any mystical or super spiritual techniques or drummed up experiences just means being a people who are saturated with his word so used to seeing Christ in the scriptures 
that seeing him in the day-to-day of everyday life will just become the norm. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire, our longing, our yearning, that we might not just know about your son, we might just not know just facts and information and historical records, but that we might know him as we call on his name, know his presence as the Son of Man walking among the golden lampstands, that we might know him as we gather to worship in this building and in one another's homes through the week, but that we might also know him livingly present in every waking moment of our lives and even every sleeping moment. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you might unveil Christ to the eyes of faith, that we might see him in everything and might live for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last hymn, which is the call to see Christ. Let's sing.
close with um, an ancient prayer that was attributed to uh, St. Patrick who first took the gospel to, uh, to Britain. Let's pray. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Amen.